Listener Production. Hello, Antoinette Latouf here with a pretty wild briefing for you today. Things in Russia have been a bit extra over the weekend. Well, more extra than usual. For 36 hours, Iron Fist President Vladimir Putin's grasp on power was incredibly shaky. So a former friend and head of a private Russian military wing pulled his troops from the Ukrainian front line to confront the Russian government. And they got pretty close. What they have done is a stab in the back to our great nation. And that's Putin in a televised speech over the weekend, calling it a stab in the back. So experts have described it as mutiny mayhem. Others have said it's a close coup. I reckon shit show also sums it up. So in today's briefing, we'll unpack exactly how this happened, who led the revolt, how it stopped, and crucially, what now? But first, Tom Tilly is here to get you across all the non-rebellion-related news. It is Monday, the 26th of June. And if you want to support the briefing, the best way is to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Hello, Antoinette. Hello, Briefers. Looking forward to um, this episode this morning. It's just been such a bizarre scenario to watch unfold over the weekend. Um, Into the headlines, former Labor leader and Cabinet Minister Simon Crean has suddenly died aged 74. So Simon Crean was the Labor leader between 2001 and 2003 and then was a Cabinet Minister. He's been around a long time. He was in the Hawke, Keating, Rudd and Gillard governments. He's died suddenly after doing his morning exercise whilst on a work trip in Germany. So age 74. Um, He's being remembered as a giant of the labour movement. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has released a statement saying that he's deeply saddened and shocked by this news. Lots of tributes are pouring in on Twitter, as you imagine. And one, Tom, that stood out to me was Sally McManus, head of the ACTU, because Corinne uh, played an important, a really significant role in the union movement. She said, rest in power, Crane. For those who don't remember Crane, I think what he probably will be most remembered for is that he was the Labour leader who opposed Australia's involvement mm. um, in the Iraq war. Um, and Simon Crane told the parliament in the presence of President Bush that the true measure of friendship was to tell a friend that they were wrong. Mm. And then, as it turns out, they were wrong on the Iraq war. Yeah, it's a really brave stance. And historically, very few opposition leaders have opposed um, a war. So he took a brave stand, and as you say, was proven right. And there are big changes at the scandal-plagued PwC. The big accounting firm that misused confidential government information to help big multinationals avoid paying tax. So the firm has a new CEO, Kevin Burrows, and it's selling off the government consulting part of its business for just $1 to private equity investor Allegro Funds. So the proposed buyout involves the creation of a new company, that will have about $300 million in theoretical billings and will provide consulting services to public sector organisations. Yeah, so this is a massive damage control by PwC. They're breaking off the part of its business that had all the government contracts. And the reason it sold for $1 is that most of those contracts or potentially all of them will go away and there won't be any new revenue for this part of Mm. the business. This was about 20% of the overall revenue for PwC. So they've basically had to 
sacrifice that to save the rest of their business. I did have a bit of an alternative thought about this whole story over the weekend as this buyout was looming, Antoinette, that maybe to their Mm -hmm. corporate clients, as much as this has been really bad PR for PwC, maybe their corporate clients like, well, you know, these guys will do anything for us. Even throw the government yeah, under the bus. I guess so. And if they've lost 20% of its revenue, they're going to have to work really hard for its like the remaining clientele and, and to, to sort of build out that business model again. But, you know, for me, the bigger unanswered questions are like, what is being done about the inherent conflict of interest of the big four? Um, these big four firms providing advice to both public sector and private sector clients because that remains kind of unresolved. But also, what does this mean for the public service, which for years has been pretty undermined, slowly understaffed, undertrained? Like what's being done to boost the health of that sector so that we don't like just keep seeing it with a bit of a one-dimensional lens and make the jokes of it being, you know, inefficient workers with too many coffee breaks who knock off work at 3.30 p.m.? And electric cars have become even cheaper with a new model from BYD, Build Your Dreams, starting at $38,000. So this Chinese brand is now selling the country's cheapest new electric cars with deliveries due in October. It's a brand that not a lot of Australians will know, but it's become a, a major threat to Tesla globally and has garnered a really loyal cult-like following. Yeah, and this car in particular is about the size of a Toyota Corolla. I don't know if you've seen it, Tom, but it's not that fancy looking. But it means for the first time in Australia, we'll have two electric cars that are priced under $40,000, you know, which makes it a lot more affordable um, for regular Aussies. And there are some rebates that can be applied that'll make that even cheaper. And this car manufacturer about a year ago released another car, the Atto 3, that was in late 2022. And that became the biggest seller, well, sorry, the second biggest seller of EVs in Australia. And yes, at the moment, it is well behind Tesla, but it does have about 15% share of the market and that is growing. And if you haven't donated blood because you've got fresh ink, my fresh tattoo, there is no excuse now because the Red Cross has changed the rules, meaning anyone with fresh ink only has to wait seven days, not the four months it used to be. Our medical team recently conducted a comprehensive review and determined this change would have no impact on the safety of the blood supply. And we're pleased to be able to announce this change today. That's Lifeblood's Cat Stone there. The Australian Red Cross is hoping to get an extra 10,000 donations a year by changing the rules when it comes to tattoos. So, Tom, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you give blood? Um, No, I don't. But that wasn't my excuse. And I actually don't have one. Like an excuse or a tattoo. I have one. I do have a tattoo. Not in the last seven days. I actually got a tattoo when I was 16. It looks like like a prison tat now. It's so old. But I don't give blood because my, I actually get iron infusions because my iron count is so low. So I am exempt. Thanks, Tom. Let's head to Russia, which was on the brink of a bloody coup. If you looked away from the news for a day, you may have missed a pretty huge story out of Russia. And no, it's not to do with Ukrainians who were involved and have been at war with Russia for 16 months now. President Vladimir Putin faced an armed mutiny this weekend, and it came from a section of his own military. And they got pretty close to Moscow. There are reports they seized control of Russia's military HQ. But how did it happen? Who put a stop to it? 
And crucially, what does it mean for Putin's reign? Professor Monica Attard, co-director at the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney, has most of these answers because a lot of it is unfolding. She was ABC's Russia's correspondent between 89 and 94 and again in 2003 to 2004. And she was the ABC Russia correspondent at possibly the best time in modern history because she was reporting on the coup against Mikhail Gorbachev and the collapse of the Soviet communism in 1991. Monica, thanks for joining us. Like, how close was Putin's 23 reign from collapsing? Uh, I think a fair way from collapsing, actually. I mean, it was a very, very confusing day on Saturday, so we didn't, you know, really understand a lot of what was going on. It was quite shocking. It was surprising. It was very dramatic. Mm. So essentially what happened is that there is a group called Wagner, which is a group of Russian soldiers who in their core come from what's known as in Russia as the GRU, which is the military intelligence community, and bolstered by others now. But it, it's been around for quite some time, probably about 15, 20 years. And whilst it's not exactly part of the Russian army, it's sanctioned by the Kremlin. Mm. So it's not an illegal unit, it's not an underground unit, but it is outside of the military, it is armed and it is a mercenary group. So it's a very, very kind of shady outfit. And for a long time, we didn't know who ran it, but recently, as a result of Russia invading Ukraine, we discovered that the person who led Wagner was in fact Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is very, very well known to all of us who watch Russia because he's very, very close to Vladimir Putin. In any event, he's been quite unhappy with the way he's been treated by the Russian Ministry of Defence during the, uh, the Ukrainian war. The Wagner group has been extremely active in the Ukraine war. Mm. It has made the most significant advances on behalf of the Kremlin in Ukraine. So it thinks it should be treated very well. Prigozhin thinks that Wagner has not been treated well. He wanted to tell Putin. He decided to get on his little tank and drive from <laughs> uh, from Ukraine to Moscow all the way through southern Russia and through Rostov-on-Don, which is where the, the southern division of the Russian military is headquartered. And uh, he decided he'd tell Putin himself. Now, did he intend to drive to Moscow in his tank and seize power? I doubt it. In fact, I'm, mm. I would be very hesitant to say that this was a coup d'etat. But yes, it was a mutiny. It was most certainly a mutiny, even if in Prigozhin's own mind, that's not what he intended. And this Prigozhin, who is a, a bit of a, a bit of a shady character, he was really close to Putin. I mean, he's been dubbed Putin's chef. Um, but I want to talk about Wagner Group for a moment because this is a pretty infamous military outfit, um, mm. and it is. And I just want to note here that it is private, although it is um, sanctioned by the Russian government. But it's also involved. Uh, Wagner has been involved um, in wars on behalf of um, the U.S. government um, and in Afghanistan, for example. Why do you think Wagner turned on Putin? Because some believe uh, the, this failed rebellion or whatever you want to call it was a bid to retain this um, mercenary force's independence. 
That's right. I mean, that's exactly right. So so what had happened was that about a month ago, the Kremlin decided, th- there's been a dispute going on between Wagner and the Kremlin, as I mentioned earlier. But Prigozhin has been really, really, really loud very recently. And in fact, all the way through the Ukraine war, he's been very, very loud in his criticism of the way the Kremlin, the Russians have conducted the war in Ukraine. In his view, I might add, not because they've been too brutal, they haven't been brutal enough. They haven't been badass enough in Ukraine. That's what he thinks. So he has been extremely verbally critical of the Kremlin and of Putin, but in a way that if you had said the things that he says, if you said those things in Russia, you would be arrested. You'd be put away. Mm. They push you away and throw away the key. So he's gotten away with a mm. lot. But about a month ago, the Kremlin decided to try to rein Wagner Group in, probably as punishment for uh, Prigozhin's behaviour. And, and bearing in mind that it's the Kremlin who's paying their salaries as well. But they decided to bring them in, rein them in, and put them on contracts, Kremlin-based contracts. And this is where Yevgeny Prigozhin has gone absolutely you know, crazy and decided he's going to protest. So let's talk geography and control. How close did they get? Because uh, the troops were like, the troops were pulled from the Ukraine front line, allegedly heading to Moscow. How far along did they get to seize or take control of the military HQ? And how far is that from Moscow? So they crossed over from Ukraine, which is where they were fighting, into Russia. And the first significant town that you hit is Rostov-on-Don. And that is where the uh, southern region military headquarters of Russia are based. It's a very big city, very beautiful city. I've been in many times. It's a very big and beautiful city. It's also a military town. So, you know, obviously it's where the southern regional headquarters of the Russian military are because Russia is, of course, as you know, a massive country with five different time mm. zones. So you, you have headquarters in various parts of the country. Rostov is home to the southern headquarters. And so, um, he took his boys into Rostov-on-Don and went to the military headquarters, basically told the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB, that he was there and he wanted to speak to the commander-in-chief and he was permitted in and then there was very little resistance. Nobody said, hang on a mm. second, no, you have no right to be here. Now, whether that constitutes taking over Rostov-on-Don it's a big question, but, you know, for mm. the purposes of the, the story, let's call it he took over Rostov-on-Don. And mm. from there he decided he would drive to Moscow, so the next town was Varonezh, which he hit. Again, there was a bit of fighting on the outskirts, but he was able to drive through that city, which is a very large city, on his way to Moscow. He got within 200 kilometres of Moscow. Mm. Everybody was watching on GPS, is he going to get there? When are they going to stop him? This is the really interesting point for me because then Belarus comes in to broker a deal and maybe I'm being unfair, but Belarus isn't usually making headlines, right, or in the limelight unless it's Eurovision. Like what happened? So Belarus has been, uh, the Belarusian leader, Lukashenko, is very close to Putin. Um, And even though Belarus is not involved in the Ukraine war, it has lent a lot of 
physical and moral support to Russia in its campaign mm. in Ukraine. So what happened was Prigozhin's on his tank. He's driving up the, from the north of Varonezh up to uh, Moscow. And the Russians send a couple of helicopters to try and bomb him. But they one helicopter gets blown out of the air to... Russian helicopter pilots die. Um, mm. They send another helicopter. They get blown out of the air. We don't know the fate of those helicopter pilots. So the Russians are not quite getting, they're not quite stopping him. He's fighting back. At this point, it looks very much, A, like a mutiny, and B, like yes. it could be a coup. So the, the, the Belarusians decide to help out Putin. They Lukashenko rings up Prigozhin says, hey, you better stop because if you get to the gates of Moscow, they're going to blast the shit out of you and you're not going to live and a lot of your boys will die in the process, so it's probably not worth it, and a deal is done. That's literally how it happened. It was that barbaric. Like, it's pretty funny because he went in there all gung-ho and then it looked like, it seemed like it quickly began, okay, I'm getting out of here, where's the plane? Um, well, I'm, well I'm fl- it, it, it kind of, it, it looks funny for me outside, but in fact, it's really not. I mean, Russia was a hair's breadth away from a civil war because mm. if Prigozhin had gotten to Moscow, there would have been a terrible, bloody fight. It would have been a sure. very, very bloody fight. And there are a lot of people who actually like Prigozhin and Wagner because they tell the truth about the war in Ukraine. And also it it would have been very difficult for the Russian president to go any further to get him on the road to Moscow without Mm. pulling out, you know, really, really big weaponry because, in a sense, that would have been the Kremlin killing its own troops on the way to Moscow to make a complaint about the war. Not a good look. Well, the Kremlin says that Prigozhin, um, he's not going to be prosecuted despite being accused of this um, mutiny. I'm not sure anybody is buying that because we've seen what's happened to dissidents um, in the past and even those who've criticised the Ukrainian war. But I am keen to know for Putin, like, yes, he's survived this, if you want to call it a coup, um, but is this the beginning of the end of, of his reign or of, of him being seen to be that iron fist leader? Look, there's a lot of chat out there that this is the beginning of the end of Vladimir Putin. My take on Vladimir Putin is always wait until it happens because you never know. Mm-hmm. Personally, no, I don't think it is. I think there's every possibility, in fact, that it strengthens him, particularly in Ukraine. You know, when you, when you sit back and look at it, you think here is a leader who, yet yeah, has been wounded a little bit. He was hurt personally. He didn't expect Prigozhin to do this. Prigozhin has been exiled. Good luck with that. Um, let's see mm-hmm. if he survives the year. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think the Russians will kill him yet. I think it'll, it, they'll let him stew and look over his shoulder for a year. They might even use him in Belarusia to help Lukashenko get his military together to help in the fight in Ukraine. But if I were Putin now, what would I be thinking? I'd be thinking I've got to do something really, really big to show how strong I am so the West stops talking about how weak I am. And I think the people who will pay the price for that will be the Ukrainians. You know, the chance of a big... Mm violent offensive in Ukraine, I think is quite real. It's quite strong. You know, whether he's weakened ultimately, there are parallels, I have to say, with my own experience in Russia in 1991 when Gorbachev was overthrown. 
a few differences, but one of the parallels is that when the coup was mounted against Gorbachev in August of 1991, it only lasted three days. It was a real Mm. coup, not a pretend one. It lasted three days. It collapsed. He was returned to power, but he only lasted three months because the structures were broken. And I think that's if there's any damage here, in 2023, it's that the, the vertical of power has collapsed. Mm. You know, people, officials, oligarchs, FSB, all used to think that they were the rulers with Putin at the top. And now it sh- we, we see that actually Putin is not in control of absolutely everything like we thought he was. That was Professor Monica Attard, co-director at the Centre for Media Transition at UTS, also a former Russia correspondent for the ABC, who actually covered the coup against uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and Soviet communism in 1991. Uh, so this, this wannabe mutiny has implications nationally, but obviously that extend to the Ukraine and the rest of the world. But it is still very much a developing, a developing as much as it is a gripping story. And what will really happen to Yegvini Prigovzhniv? Um, it sounds like he is unlikely to survive this. Um, in Ukraine, its president uh, Zelensky uh, has has chimed in saying that this shows complete chaos in Russia and that the boss of Russia does do, do not actually control anything. Um, and it is terribly sad if what Monica says is true, that next on Putin's agenda would be a show of force, and that is probably going to be against Ukrainians. And it should be remembered that at the moment, civilian support for the war in Ukraine remains high. So I guess Putin technically survived this standoff, but it it really remains to be seen if he looks weaker. And to who? Is it his enemies? Is it his own people? And or is it his own military? And crucially, what exactly is going to come next? Listener.